I wonder what image, what picture comes to mind when we think of Jesus. Perhaps as we approach Christmas, we might visualise Jesus the tiny baby, born into a stable environment somewhere near Bethlehem. Or maybe, to be perhaps more true to the season of Advent, if not to scripture itself, we might conceive of Jesus as the unborn child, carried by his mother on a donkey, led by Joseph. Or perhaps we might imagine Jesus the teenager, precociously engaging with the scribes in the temple. Or Jesus the adult, eating meals with friends, annoying the religious authorities and bringing healing and wholeness to those whom he encountered. Or perhaps we might think of Jesus on the cross, or Jesus of the empty tomb. Or maybe we think of Jesus in more metaphorical terms. You know, Jesus the Good Shepherd, Jesus the Light of the World, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Bread of Life, Jesus the Living Water, Jesus the Gateway to Eternal Life. However, there's one image which I'm going to guess doesn't readily come to mind, and yet it is one with a strong scriptural precedent. And this is the image of Jesus as the thief in the night. We've already met Jesus, the thief, in our passage for this morning. He's there in verses 43 to 44 of our Gospel reading. But we can find him in a number of other places elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Something which he reinforces a couple of verses later, reminding his readers in Thessalonica that because they live in the light and not in the darkness. They will not be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. 2 Peter 3 makes a similar point, taking the language of Paul and reappropriating it for a later generation. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. And then in a similar apocalyptic vein, there are a couple of references to Jesus the thief in the book of Revelation. Firstly, Revelation chapter 3, the church in Sardis are told, Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And then secondly, in Revelation chapter 16, the voice of Jesus proclaims, See, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked and exposed to shame. Have I convinced you yet that Jesus, the thief, is a strong New Testament image for Jesus? This idea of Jesus breaking and entering a house in order to plunder the property within finds a parallel in Mark's Gospel, where Jesus gives his parable of the strong man. Mark chapter 3 reads... No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man, and then, indeed, the house can be plundered. And in this short parable, Jesus makes his subversive intentions clear, likening his own mission to that of a thief. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus' ministry can be understood in terms of him breaking into Satan's house, tying him up and releasing that which has been held captive, The strong man is Satan. Jesus is the thief that breaks into his house and ties him up. 
Matthew, in our passage for this morning, presents basically the same idea, but just very slightly differently, offering us perhaps a different perspective on Jesus the thief, emphasising the unexpectedness of the manner of his coming. And one of the interesting things about many of these references to Jesus the thief, and it's something we find in our passage for today as well, is the way that they interplay between the language of light and darkness and the language of daytime and night. So you've got night and darkness giving way to daylight and light. Jesus the thief comes unexpectedly in the night. He comes suddenly into the darkness of a slumbering world. But when he comes, what he brings with him is light and life, because he brings what is often described as the day of the Lord. The darkness of the night gives way to the light of the day. This is a most strange kind of thief, isn't it? Most thieves operate in darkness and like to keep it that way. They come in darkness, steal what they've come to acquire, and then leave under the cover of darkness. But although Jesus, the thief, comes in darkness, what he brings is not more darkness, but the growing brightness of the dawning of the day of the Lord. And the unexpected hour of the arrival of the day reveals the deeds of the night for what they were, bringing into view that which might otherwise remain shrouded in darkness. So as Paul says in our reading from his letter to the Romans, the time has come to lay aside the works of darkness and to put on the armour of light, to live honourably as in the day, he says. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this language of thief in the night used very unhelpfully over the years. And I want this morning to offer us a different and, I believe, better way of engaging with it. The application of this image of Jesus as a thief in the night certainly should not be, look busy, Jesus is coming. Neither should it primarily be about morality and the risk of us getting caught out doing something naughty. I can remember a youth leader once saying to me, you know, don't do anything shameful because what if you're in the middle of it and Jesus comes back and catches you at it? My goodness. In fact, I think that's a really unhelpful way of looking at these things. I want to suggest that any attempt to use the promise of Jesus coming as a threat to enforce ethics by fear is a very long way from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And neither, whilst I'm busting myths, is this passage about what has often been called the rapture, which is a largely unscriptural and relatively recent doctrine which teaches Christians to expect that at a sudden and unexpected future point, Jesus is going to come back and then all the believers will be swept off the earth to glory in the clouds whilst the world quite literally goes to hell beneath them. You may have come across this as well. Not really very scriptural, to be honest. The passage before us today is about the incarnation. It's about the coming of Jesus into the world as a human being. Not as a king, but as a refugee. Not as a powerful ruler, but as a dissident revolutionary. Not as the son of a king, but as the child of a young and unmarried girl. Jesus, the light of the world came into the darkness, not as anyone expected him to come, but in the most surprising way imaginable. He came as a thief in the night, 
under the cover of darkness, to bring a new and unexpected light of the day of the Lord. He came to plunder the house of the strong man and liberate those who had been held captive there. He came to steal the world back from the forces of Satan and break the power of the owner of the house. And the earth has been enslaved for far too long. The forces of the satanic empire have held power over the peoples of the earth for so long that it has become normality. And too easily we have grown complacent to the horror of it. Back to Matthew's Gospel. This image of two men in a field, with one of them taken and one of them left, or two women at the mill, one of them taken, one of them left, is a stark metaphor for the terror of the satanic empire as it wreaks its way across the face of the earth. Tom Wright, I think helpfully, reminds us of the force of this image. He says... This doesn't mean, as some have suggested, that one person is taken away by God in some kind of supernatural salvation whilst the other is left to face destruction. If anything, it's the opposite. When invading forces sweep through a town or a village, they take some off to their deaths and leave others untouched. The empire flexes its muscles and someone dies while someone else lives. And we say to ourselves, well, that's just the way of the world, isn't it? We're still here. That person over there is dead now, but we're still here. And we justify our complicity in such satanic systems as long as it's me and mine that remain alive. We comfort ourselves with the mantra that the death of others elsewhere to war and starvation and oppression is regrettable, sure, but probably unavoidable. And the force of Jesus' image of two workers side by side, with one taken off to their death and one escaping with their life, the force of this image is that actually all humans are equal and all workers are alike. So whether the person is working at the top of the pile in the affluent West or at the bottom of the pile in a dangerous and impoverished developing world, maybe the image Jesus is using here is to say we're all equal in the sight of God. We stand side by side working in the world. The shock of one being taken and one left vividly highlights the capricious nature of those principalities in power that control life and death on a global scale. So whether it was the Roman Empire of the first century or the empire of global capital in the 21st century, I think Jesus here is inviting us to realise that when someone somewhere else dies and we are left, something is profoundly wrong with the world. So when someone dies in the collapse of a poorly built factory in Bangladesh or at the bottom of a substandard coltan mine in the Congo, they are in actual fact the worker who was standing alongside us as we wear our affordable clothes and use our smartphones to update our status. The other has been taken, and we remain. Two men standing in a field, one gone, one left. Two women at the mill, one gone, one left. Who chooses? It's not God making that choice. This is the evil systems of our world, taking some and leaving others. The darkness of the satanic empire that runs this world is very real. And it is into this darkness that the light of the world comes like a thief in the night, to steal the world back from these forces of empire.
This is how Jesus came into the darkness of the Roman Empire, which did exactly the same thing in its own day, sweeping its forces into a country, taking some, leaving others. And it's how he still comes, a light into the darkness. It's how he comes again and again and again. The light of the world comes today as he has always come, and he comes as a thief in the night, unexpectedly, irrevocably, subversively, slipping in under the radar to steal the world back from those forces that currently hold it hostage. The strong man's house, to go back to the image from Mark's Gospel, is still in darkness. The military and economic forces of the empire still tower over the world. And I don't have a crystal ball, but my guess is that the way things are going to play out over the next four years means that the economic and military powers in our world are going to get more belligerent rather than less. And those of us who have to live with that run the risk of being lulled to sleep with the opiate of affluence. You know, as long as we've got our houses and our clothes and, and the nice things in our lives, maybe we just close our eyes to the darkness that's all around us because we can't bear to see it. The call of the image of Jesus as a thief is that we should wake up, we should open our eyes and we should learn to see the world around us in the light of his dawning day. We should be ready for the revolution of Jesus not napping the night away. We may be the undercover sleeper agents of the inbreaking kingdom of God, but we mustn't be caught sleeping with our heads under the covers. The call is for us to be ready and alert to the light of Christ, which shines in the most unexpected of places. We must never think we know in advance where Jesus will be found next. We must always be ready to greet him whenever and wherever he appears, because we are called to be ever attentive to the dawning of the day of the Lord. There are those who say Jesus could never be there. Jesus could never be in that person. Jesus could never be in that group. Wherever we as humans draw a boundary and say Jesus is never the other side of that boundary, I'm going to lay you a bet. Jesus is the other side of that boundary. The invitation is for us to wake up, to open our eyes, and to learn to see the world differently. And yet it's an invitation that is very easy to ignore. You see, the world can just seem so very normal, can't it? It can be so hard to believe that not everything around us is of equal value. It can be so hard to believe that not everything we do is of equal value. So here perhaps, and this is taking us again back to our reading from Matthew, we need to learn the lesson of Noah. Noah could see that the world was going to change. His eyes were opened to the darkness that surrounded him, and he started building his ark accordingly. But everyone else in the Noah story just went on eating and drinking and marrying and having children and little realising that they were sleepwalking their way to disaster. The story of Noah offers a clear parable of just how easy it is to carry on carrying on whilst remaining willfully or blissfully blind to the darkness that is closing in all around us. I mean, the horrors of climate change are being very clearly signposted for us, and yet our governments just keep ignoring the Paris Climate Change Agreement and the Copenhagen one before that, and 
you know, we just carry on carrying on because we think it's not real. Wake up. See what's coming, says Jesus. And what's coming is the day of the Lord. Noah, the story of Noah is not a message of bleakness, though, not entirely. It offers a message of hope to those who live upon the earth because the promise of Noah at the end of the story, the promise that God gives to Noah, is that God is turning his back on the strategy of rebooting creation. Genesis chapter 8. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground and because of humankind, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The story of Noah explores and rejects the idea that God might one day restart the earth with a small group of the elect few lifted above the tumult to survive and repopulated a recreated earth. Our future is here on this earth. This is why I have no truck with those American Christians who say we don't need to worry about addressing climate change because Jesus is going to come back and wipe it all away anyway, so it doesn't matter. Our future is here on this earth before God. And we need to wake up to the impact that the empires we create are having on the created order that is ours to tend. God is not, I think, going to give us a get-out-of-jail-free card and restart it all for the faved few on a newly minted Earth Mark II. It's no small irony that this passage that we have today from Matthew's Gospel has been used so extensively by those who have argued that we should expect exactly this, but I think they're wrong. The point of the parable of Noah is that the coming flood is not a flood of destruction, it's the flood of the inbreaking kingdom of God. It's the flood of the dawning day of the Lord, it's the coming of the Son of Man whose light shines in the darkness, exposing to the light even the darkest corners of the earth. The encouragement to wake up, to be alert, to live in the light is both an encouragement to build lives that will endure when exposed to the light of Christ and a warning to those whose deeds and priorities and relationships are only sustainable in the darkness. As Jesus says earlier in Matthew's Gospel, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was its fall. The coming day of the Lord is a flood which exposes the very foundations on which our lives and empires have been built. And it asks us to consider carefully the ground on which we're building. We might get away with it once, we might get away with it twice, we might get away with it for years. We might get away with it for long enough to become President of the United States. But in time, the behaviour becomes a pattern and luxury becomes an addiction and priorities slowly reorientate themselves away from a life lived in the light of Christ towards a life lived in darkness. We displace God revealed in Christ as the ground of our being to our peril. And if we fill the void with patterns of our own devising, they don't have any eternal value. And all the while, when we do this, we blind ourselves to what's happening, closing our eyes to the light of the day and slowly sleepwalking our way to destruction. Wake up, says Jesus, because the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. The days of darkness are numbered and the time has now come to walk in the light of the Lord. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Do you ever read me Thomas Hardy? 
I I read a bit of Thomas Hardy when I was a teenager. In his novel, The Tess of the Durbervilles, the heroine Tess ponders the day of her death. And she observes that everyone who has died is always remembered on the anniversary of their death. And yet they lived their whole life never knowing that date, just passing over the day of their death as if it were another day. Well, says Jesus, keep awake, therefore. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. No one expected Bethlehem, no one expected a baby, no one expected Mary or a Joseph or a stable. No one expected the homeless wandering prophet of new life. No one expected the cross, no one expected the resurrection. And yet this was how Jesus came and it is how he still comes. As Bruce Coburn so memorably put it, redemption rips through the surface of time in the cry of a tiny babe. So be alert and keep awake. Because the Son of Man comes like a thief in the night to steal the world for good.